You're listening to a Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th Annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Paul Duffy from University of Leicester, entitled Digging the Dissolution. As is usual with my presentations, this is very image-heavy, very slide-heavy, so um, apologies if it causes any vertigo as we hurtle through these slides. Um, I'm more at home, I suppose, discussing medieval results, uh, medieval archaeology. But there's a number of sites around Dublin we've been excavating for the last number of years that have shown up, um, I suppose, clear evidence of the transition between um, the dis- what's happening pre- and post-Reformation in Dublin, specifically around the dissolution of the monasteries. But also, um, I think we can make some comments on what's happening with some of the parish churches as well. So I'll put up uh, Speed to begin with, and I've crudely drawn over Speed just to remind us about uh, how much um, land was actually tied up with monastic foundations at the time. And I just marked those in blue, um, yellow is other, uh, other religious foundations. I, I've missed a few, but it's just to give a visual, I suppose, indication of the, the amount of Dublin, uh, to the extent of which Dublin was surrounded by ecclesiastical lands. Um, so we've been digging around Dublin, myself personally, around Dublin for the last eight years, and the, the medieval period is very well represented, as is the um, the Georgian period. Uh, we do come across a lot of um, Tudor and Stuart era stuff, but I suppose I get less of an opportunity to talk about it, maybe. So I've started with a couple of images. The Elizabeth uh, Penny is from George Street, um, beneath the new Stay City Hotel, if anybody knows it. This is from Stephen Street, a really nice little figurine, probably late 17th century, out of a cesspit, and we'll come back to that later on. From the same site, uh, a wine bottle that's been dated to around 1680, uh, intact, which again is rare. And then these majolica uh, tiles that come up as well, which are presumably from either walls or maybe from beside uh, fireplaces. Um, just give you an indication of the value a full one is going for on eBay these days. Um, and this is a bit of a show-off on my part. I've just highlighted all of the sites we've actually had ar- archaeological investigations on over the last eight years that I've been involved in. And for a different talk, uh, to be honest, I've highlighted which ones had medieval um, remains highlighted in yellow, and the remainder would have had, well, as in medieval plus, obviously the post-medieval horizons that you'll invariably get on your way down to them, and then the blue sites will have had, all of them will have had some element of, uh, of post-medieval remains, be it small, though it might be areas of cobbling or bits of wall. Um, again, just to give you an idea of the kind of conditions that we're working in, so I work in pre-development archaeology, rescue archaeology, and um, invariably we're working cheek by jail with demolition contractors, main contractors. So to get down to the archaeology, oftentimes in the city centre you have to remove buildings, uh, buildings from the 20th century or earlier, which have all these concrete elements to them. So um, 
just a couple of images, I suppose, to give you a sense of where this information is coming from. Um, and you might spare us a thought the next time you're uh, relying on an archaeological report for one of your papers. Um, just to give you a sense again, the type of preservation for the post-medieval um, structures can be excellent. That's Newmarket Square at the top left, which we've excavated in the last couple of years. A huge plot there on the north side of the square. and We had 57 house plots, all quite well represented. Mainly the, the backland features, the houses not so much, but the cesspits, the, the wells, cisterns, and networks of timber water pipes as well. Um, this one in the top right, we'll come back to, that's Thomas Street. Bottom left again, we'll come back to that. That's um, Stephen Street by St. Peter's Church. And then uh, Camden Row on the bottom left, uh, bottom right. And just to show the kind of level of, I suppose, disturbance you can get from all different time periods down through um, the archaeology you're hoping to find. So to begin, I wanted to speak about three case studies. Now, hopefully we'll get the moss um, shoehorned in, but if I am getting to the end, I'd appreciate it now because I want, to make some, um, I want to make some sensationalist claims at the very end that I, want to, I don't want to miss. So um, Abbey St. Thomas the Martyr, founded in 1177. We won't get into all that, but um, just have it highlighted in red on the bottom left. It was uh, made a cameo in Sean's um, talk just there. We led an excavation in 2017 in the main. It ran from 16 to 18. A very large site um, just beside St. Catherine's Church. Is this point is showing up? Saint, the current St. Catherine's Church, um, Catherine's Lane, the old Frawley's department store. And this was our excavation. That's marking out the, the Abbey graveyard that we found and the suspected location of the Abbey Church based on some investigations that have been carried out in the past. So we're around about here in Speed's depiction of the Abbey. So leading up to the, the dissolution, the Reformation, this is what we think the Abbey and environs would have looked like. And again, our excavations were in this area here. Um, I'll signpost a couple of publications as we go through if you want to read up on the, the medieval aspects or a bit more in detail about the digs themselves. It's just to show the, the chaotic nature of the archaeology we found. Very intense um, medieval in the main. Uh, cesspits and tanning pits, the precinct wall of the abbey, and then into the calmer environs of the, um, the abbey cemetery below. So again, this is us. And this drawing is somewhat informed by our, our um, excavations, although some things have changed. Um, to do with the dissolution in particular, so all of these abbey buildings were quarried out uh, in the 17th century, by the 17th century, uh, as with the, the majority of the foundations around town. But, and this is the, the subject of my doctoral thesis, all these fragments of medieval masonry started to emerge at Thomas Street, built into 17th and 18th century cellars uh, and, and different features. So very quickly, through dis dismembered and disembodied fragments, we can kind of put a little bit of flesh on the bones of these um, uh, ecclesiastical buildings, some really, really high-end um, carving that's under, undercut uh, Dundry, which is obviously imported from... Uh, the Bristol area, really, you know, there's nothing like this really surviving in, in Ireland, but it harks back to places like uh, Southern Minister and that, um, the highest level of, of craftsmanship. Um, and that's the early end of the Gothic phase, so 12th, 13th century. A large amount of this decorated, cusped um, Gothic masonry as well, which replaces the, the, the earlier style. And just to give you an idea how all that might have come together, 
And then again, getting close to our period and actually really in our Tudor period, um, you know, just to show that there is works, there are works and there are upgrades happening to these foundations right the way up into the 1500s. Um, that's a cloister base from a remodelling of the cloister at St. Thomas's Abbey. It's a really nice piece of work. And a parallel uh, 15th century, late 15th century into the 16th century possibly. There's a close parallel there at Sligo Abbey. The other thing that's coming, um, well, suggestions of iconoclasm as well, perhaps from some of these fragments that we're finding. So this is a, a wimple tailor, or possibly a mason's cap, and the face has clearly been knocked off before the piece of stone has just been used as, as a, a bit of masonry. So was there a bit of um, iconoclasm happening in these buildings post-dissolution when they were being uh, treated as, uh, I suppose, used as secular buildings in the first instance and then being quarried afterwards? Um, and the best example of this that we came across was a latrine pit that had been built partially into the, um, the precinct wall from the inside. So following the dissolution, we see very clearly, I, I pointed out the, the segregation of noisy bustling activity to the north during the, the monastery's lifespan uh, and the quiet sort of cemetery below. Once the, the dissolution begin, or, has taken effect, we see all that industrial activity spilling down into the, uh, the precinct itself. And this latrine pit is, is part of that change. And the reason why it's so interesting is it's constructed largely of blocks of reused decorated masonry. Uh, a lot of that cusp tracery that, that I showed you was actually used in there. I'll point out this triangular piece here that's just behind the ranging rod, um, which turned out to be a gabled fragment of dundry, which was very strange. It had these little fillets here and a, an opening. We cleared out that mortar in the hopes that there might have been some kind of face or representation, but it was blank. And this sort of chimney effect, a uh, little fitting for taking something like a cross or something like that that would have been inserted into it. We found two strange fragments like that. And sensational claim number one, um, we started looking around for what could this have been. Um, there's not a huge amount of these gabled fragments used in the exterior, exterior buildings in Ireland. They do exist, however, but we were drawn to the, to the, the representations of the shrine of Thomas Beckett in Canterbury, one of the most important um, pilgrim places, places of pilgrimage in um, England, right up to the, the reign of Henry VIII, who took a very bad set against Thomas Beckett and destroyed the, um, the, the shrine. So this is the kind of gabled feature we're talking about, richly, um, richly decorated. And there's a great, uh, recently there's been a great reconstruction, digital reconstruction done of it online. So myself and Tyler O'Keefe were putting our heads together and thinking around, could this piece be part of... Um, there was certainly a relic to Thomas Beckett in, in the monastery. Uh, we know that. Well, we, we, we can infer it from a number of documents, and it, it, makes, uh, it makes sense to do it an extension of the abbey. Again, I try to stay out of these rabbit holes or else I'll, I'll lose myself. But um, again, is this an act of iconoclasm? Is it, a, is it a coincidence that this gabled fragment and all these other richly ornate um, pieces of masonry ended up in a, a latrine that was possibly built around in the 1540s, 1550s. So following the dissolution, the Brabazon family are, are granted the, um, the lands of the abbey. And I want to just talk briefly about our excavations along the side of Catherine's Lane. In particular, these buildings here, you'll see basically uh, a seven, early 17th century structures with corner fireplaces subdivided. So you've got your front room, back room, front room, back room, 
and the corner fireplace were really standard. This was a terrace of buildings and the corner fireplaces served um, these buildings. The amazing thing about these buildings is they're captured in a really <laughs> amazing document really. So we have a statement from 1634 to do with a legal case that was taken against Edward Brabazon um, for having built these houses on what wasn't previously mon uh, monastery land, but it was claimed to have been part of St. Catherine's Church land. So we can see that if it was obviously on the monastery land, there wouldn't have been an issue with it. So this development is happening. We have houses down here. I'll, I'll get to it in a second. But the fact that this was a bit of a, a, a liminal uh, area gave rise to this excellent document. This was sketched by a resident of the, the neighbourhood, a, a, a John Smith. And, um, you know, it's very late 16th, early 17th century. In the, in the 1634 deposition, you're talking about the houses have been, having been there since the 16, since 1615 at least. Um, and obviously a much grander example of a similar building here in Ormond Castle, in Tipperary with um, the gables, the little oculus windows, and just the, the arrangement of the windows, windows themselves, it, sort of, it smacks quite true. It's also reminiscent of the 1608, I think it is, uh, representation of Newgate that we have um, surviving. Of course, Newgate is only a couple of hundred metres down the road from Thomas's Abbey. And from within these houses, we found uh, a whole range of tiles and nice um, pottery artefacts, uh, the usual things you'd expect to get, tobacco pipes, and then this imported Fasson de Venise beaker, uh, two of them actually, which is very, very high-end. And it tallies with our time frame for the houses. There's another one with a, a lion head stamp on there. And this is part of the deposition from John Smith, and it's just, it's one of the, it's one of the greatest things I've ever come across in an excavation, because oftentimes you're digging in town, somebody who lived in the area you know, will come up to you and start telling you, oh, this was there, that was there. And this had the exact same feeling of it. It's like somebody leaning over the fence, but from 1634, to tell you that, oh, over there, there was a mud wall underlaid with stone, which we found. Um, the Frank House, which would have been in here, the wall leading up to the Frank House, that's what that is. He's discussing on this plot quince trees and plum trees, and we found plum stones in the cesspits of this era, um, and a great cistern of stone. Now, he says it was dismantled, but I think we can probably pinpoint where, where that was as well from the, the cut that was left behind. I'd re really recommend reading it. It's probably well known to... to um, to people who are interested in the, in the era, but it's there. It's in um, the JRSAI from uh, the early 20th century. It's basically a storage for a cistern. cistern. Yeah, a cistern, yeah, yeah, yeah. A sto storage for oats. Now, I'm not sure if it was above ground or below ground. Now, given the, the, way, the, the sort of underground conditions there, it was extremely wet, so it must have been an above ground feature. It also shows where the Abbey Church would have been. It's obviously gone by this stage. Some of the buildings at the dormitory and refectory are still in use. So these, this is our row of houses. Sorry, I'm, I'm swapping around the orientation a little bit. But I just wanted to point out, I couldn't resist pointing out these. Now, these houses are obviously built by Brabazon or by somebody who Brabazon has granted land to. Um, and there's no issue with them because they're, they're clearly on Abbey ground. Um, and John Smith talks about when this palisade, this pale of, of uh, fences has been put in, they're hitting the foundations to the cloister underneath and they're finding all these carved masonry uh, pieces. And uh, we found a cesspit of the period, which was lined with what looks to me reused 
fence posts which tally up quite nicely with this uh, piece here. Um, so another thing about this is, and I, I haven't looked into it too much, but I don't imagine there's too many represent representations of front gardens from Dublin um, before this time or in the 17th century in general. So it's very curious that there's a, a little picket fence and front gardens laid out there. And obviously, we're claiming that we found the same picket fence reused in the cesspit at the back. Um, jumping on to St. Mary's Abbey, a very, very large um, foundation, obviously, on the north side. Won't get into the history of it. But again, it's subject to, it's, it falls foul of the dissolution and makes its way into a number of different hands. We carried out a big excavation in the northwest side of it there two years ago. And in the main, we found Georgian and sort of um, 17th century into 18th century structures, a huge amount of cellaring and a huge amount of modern disturbance. All the blue there is, um, is concrete on the left-hand side on the plan. However, there was one wall that was very suspect, and we found it here. It was very wide. And then when we, we got on the inside of it, and there was a red brick vault springing from the wall. So I was like, okay, it must be a, a 17th century cellar. But then just the width of it again, I came back and had a look again and started to open up a little bit more. And then these features started to emerge. And it's very heavily banged up. There was obviously cast concrete there, couldn't, or mass concrete we couldn't take out because it was supporting a very important piece of the wall here, which was a batter, an external batter. And if you go over to Christchurch Cathedral, have a look at the chapter house there, the, the sunken piece that's preserved in front you see an external batter there, and it basically represents where the ground level was, more or less. Um, so this is a medieval structure that's been reused and repurposed to carry uh, a red brick vault. So it's, just, it's effectively been upgraded post-dissolution into a townhouse. Um, I've done a lot of investigation into this and what it could be. Um, I don't know if I have time to really get into it, but the yellow is the very clearly medieval pieces. The other parts are rebuilt. You have a corner fireplace inserted into it as well. There's steps leading down into a, an inserted opening here and a sort of a, a, a light well there as well. So the whole thing has been <clears throat> made a bit more commodious, should we say. But we're getting all the medieval trappings around it, the carved masonry, the floor tiles. And this is what I believe we, we have unearthed. So we put our heads together with the artist Matthew Ryan, taking all of the spatial information, all the bits and pieces that we found. And... Um, what, what I should have pointed out there very briefly is the... If you look at the angle of the street as it comes in, there's a very significant kick at this, this structure. Um, just You'll have to take my word for it because I'm not going to have time to justify it, but the road would have initially went through that building. So it was the inner gatehouse, the, the monastic precinct, represented here on speed. That speed overlaid on the modern streetscape with our excavation results plus other... Uh, excavation results put in to calibrate the whole thing. The outer gate and Abbey Green, and then you're coming into the inner gate that would have been the enclosure around the um, base of the, the cloistral buildings. <coughs> so you can see here on the Gongs map, 1673, there's a building that the, the road passes through. That's our gatehouse. And by Roke's map, we have the kink coming in. Very clearly, the road has had to swerve around the building because the arch has been blocked up. And the arch has been blocked up to create an old house, so Peter Keenan has done a very deep dive into the lease records for us on this, and he's found references to an old house, commonly called by the name of St Mary's Chapel, going back to the 1711, and then back as far as James I and his grant to Francis Agard, we have a chapel referenced as well in that area. 
that's fine. The chapels were often situated at the, the, the first floor of a monastic gatehouse. And then we have this brilliant Francis Place's view of 1619. We can pinpoint the actual building here. So you've got Mickens, St. Michael on the Hill, Christchurch, St. Pat's. Or that's possibly St. Arden's. Uh, but you see here this um, Abbey Green. If you note, all the houses are, are oriented onto that street with the exception of this one. So the street would have come through this building. This has been upgraded into a townhouse. The street has to go now around it, and here's our inserted. So we were digging this corner. It's our inserted corner fireplace. St. Peter's Church, very interesting. Um, it's a parish church, and um, compares very well with Newcastle Lions. That's a reconstruction drawing based on what we excavated. Iconoclasm, we found a, hell of, a lot of um, painted plaster that had been stripped off the walls. We also found a lot of uh, masonry. And the interesting thing here is that we have masonry that continues into the Tudor period. So obviously we're, we're not in the same sphere of... of uh, the, the parish church basically was converted into... or continued in use, let's say, through the Reformation, is what I'm trying to say with these images. Um, and then it was developed by Francis Andrews. So there's a whole network, a sequence of cellared buildings that we found and a whole sequence of, of uh, development that happened within uh, that Andrews Street site. Again, I'm not going to have time to go through it, but up until the 50s, much of them are standing. These are 1720s buildings and 1660s buildings there, or at least the bones of them, that were all levelled. You can read all about it, Medieval Dublin 19, coming up. And with a parish church, you've got a graveyard and the most notable burial that we found within that graveyard appear to have armour on it. And again, fitting, in fitting with our, our topic, it's cut away by a well that's put in after the development of the houses. So the church is there until 1680. It's a very odd situation to have the church been handed over to the, the Andrew family. Um, the graveyard is in use up until the 1650s at least, and then to have people sinking cellars and wells through a, a graveyard. I think the reason being is that it was actually cheap by gel with the Carmelite Monastery, which Andrew... Um, was granted, and there must have been some way that they, they brought this other religious institution into their purview as well. This individual, it's unprecedented in Ireland. We don't have any buried, uh, anybody buried in armour. Um, you see this, it's very poorly preserved, but it is iron, and there's a couple of visible elements on it, possible standing collar here, and short sleeve male shirt. We've had this to a lot of experts. We had CAT scans, x-rays, the Royal Armouries in, in, in Britain had a look, in England had a look. And everybody was saying, oh, <coughs> yeah, the short sleeves of uh, chainmail suggest gallow glass, which brings us back to Stephen's talk. Um, and I just couldn't square that with a gallow glass being buried in St. Peter's Church in the middle of Dublin in full armour. Um, I should mention the date range we got for it was late 15th into the 16th century. And that was it. That was about two years ago. I just couldn't bring it any further until I was reading recently something about, outside of my, my usual comfort zone, Silk and Thomas's Rebellion. And Silk and Thomas famously had a bodyguard of gallow glasses. Um, the thing is, St. Peter's Church is here, at the top of Ship Street. Ship Street slopes down to Dublin Castle. And we know that Silk and Thomas attacked Dublin Castle via Ship Street in 1534. And we know that he, he wasn't shy about adopting or co-opting religious buildings. He did so over on Thomas Street while he was attacking Newgate, the image we saw earlier on. Um, 
That attack was pushed back by use of a very innovative weapon that hadn't been seen before in Ireland called wildfire, which was effectively compressed combustible liquid forced through a trumpet and lit as it went out, so basically a flamethrower. So to come back to the question as to why a gallow glass might have been buried in St. Peter's Church around the turn of the 16th century in full armour, um, that might offer an explanation as to why, if it would have been badly damaged, uh, the armour mightn't have come off so easily. And plus, um, Silicon Thomas and crew were trying to make a hasty escape. So that's the final um, sensational claim. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.